Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. The fundamental problem at this point is not even that Donald Trump is doing the wrong thing. It's that substantively, he's doing basically nothing. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Ezra Klein. Uh, we're going to talk about solving the coronavirus pandemic. But first, there's a question. Don't that's worry, been, everybody. Yeah, it's been burning a hole in my pocket. And it's probably not at all on your mind if you are sitting here at home. Uh, but I think I think Ezra and I are both fans. You, you would agree with this, right? Of like the idea that personality psychology has something to tell us about contemporary politics. And I have heard the five-factor personality model discussed on the Ezra Klein show. Uh, I've, I've brought it up on the weeds. And one of the things we we think we have seen in a lot of the literature is that some of the polarization around education and some of the polarization around population density looks like it really tracks political polarization around something the psychometricians call openness to experience. I, I think about my father-in-law all the time, because in basic demographic terms, this is an older white man who doesn't have a college degree. He lives in a small town. She's like, oh, he's super Republican. But you hear that he likes to watch obscure documentaries about weird musicians. He loves to travel. He loves to try new foods. And he actually has exactly the psychological profile of a guy who used to be a Republican, really doesn't like Donald Trump, voted for Beto O'Rourke, uh, is going to vote for Joe Biden, right? And like this has been a lot of what's what's happened in, in American politics is that high openness people like me, like my father-in-law, like a lot of people who live in big cities and think it would be boring if there were no immigrants around and no like cool restaurants restaurants to try are trending to the left and people who are low openness, people who like routines, who find it to be sort of annoying or distressing to have like weird new stuff happening and people speaking odd languages have been going to the right. And these are not explicit policy issues. Like, should you try a new restaurant next weekend? is like not something politicians debate or, you know, do you like arty movies? But it has a lot 
to do with how people have been voting. I did an article and it was like, we ran a poll with Civis and Data for Progress. And we just asked people like, if they thought this weird Washington Color School painting was art or not. And it had like incredibly strong correlation with approval of Donald Trump, even though I, I have no idea what Donald Trump thinks about modern art. But it's it's like a very strong sort of correlate there. Is, 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 you think that's is that a fair summary? So as you say, there are a set of psychological correlates that over the past 50 years, they correlate to a lot of things in your life. Do you want to live in a city? Are you religious in an orthodox sense? As Matt mentions, like, what do you think of art and food? What do you think of your politics? And it is a common correlation that seems to drive not just people's politics, but, but a lot of different things. And as we've sorted by a bunch of different, this is a part of the story I tell in my book, that one of the sorting stories is that as the parties have become more distinctive in terms of their ideology and their demography, they've become more distinctive in terms of the psychology specifically of white people who are in them. Because the Republican Party is such a problem among non-white voters that it doesn't tend to have the psychological sorting among them. Because whether you're a kind of low openness or high openness African-American voter, you are a Democrat. Anyway, so this is should be said, this is a white person, a, a white person correlate. If you break a lot of this down in this literature, and you can see this in books like um, Prius vs. Pickup by Mark Hetherington and John Weiler, or there's a really good book uh, called Open vs. Closed by Chris Federico and a few co-authors who I'm not going to get from memory here. This comes down to how people experience threat. And a lot of the research, the way the researchers will tell you this works, is that conservatives fundamentally are people who see change as threatening. And liberals fundamentally on these psychological correlates are people who see change as exciting, right? And this gets very literalized in recent American politics. Barack Obama runs on hope and change, right? Like change should make you hopeful. And Donald Trump runs on make America great again. Like let's go back to the way things were, the familiar. Then there is a set of studies that is experimental. And one of the things they will do in these experimental studies is they will trigger a disgust response. They will make you think or make you look at a picture of a really dirty bathroom or tell you about somebody vomiting. And the reason they do this to trigger this part of the psychology is that a lot of this is believed to relate to the way people experience outside threats, which comes from um, the way people would fear germs, right? One reason you'd be concerned evolutionarily about people you don't know, outsiders coming into your tribe uh, or, or into your group, is that you do not have protection from the bacteria they might bring with them to the germs they might bring with them. So there's all this stuff going on. And, and it shows that in, in these research that conservatives are much more um, vulnerable to this kind of disgust orientation. So given all of this, what you would expect is that conservatives would be much more freaked out by a viral invader, right? An invisible enemy, as Donald Trump puts it. And you would expect the politics that we saw in the 2014 Ebola crisis, yes. which was that the, the threat was very remote, right? It was, it was hypothetical the whole time. But conservatives worried a lot about the hypothetical threat that this Ebola that was in West Africa might come to the United States. And it was, there was a, a, big gold dump truck full of opportunism behind some of that. But also it resonated with the conservative audience like Fo Fox News does political propaganda, but they don't do things that kill their ratings. It was like pushing downhill 
to convince grassroots conservatives to become more alarmed about a viral infection spreading from beyond our nation's borders. And I feel like coronavirus, actually, before it was a mainstream topic of conversation, had that quality. Like, most of the people I heard, like, fretting about this in mid-January were conservatives. And now the politics... I don't think that's right. Um, that that does not include my... I mean, like, think of something like Zeynep Tufetsky, or there are plenty... Like, a lot of the voices, I think, were, were pretty early on this were not yeah, conservatives. Yeah. I want to I hold here okay. because I want to finish the point I was making, though, before we go, before we go into this. So the question here is, why are you not seeing a stronger averse response from conservatives given um, fear orientation and given the sort of stronger disgust response. And I've been talking to political psychologists about this. And part of my background on this is I looked at a lot of this literature in my book. And there was a version of a chapter I was doing, this Republicans and Democrats chapter, which is in the book, which relied very heavily on it. And ultimately, I pulled it all out of that chapter because the way this stuff comes into the real world, I think it is telling us something important and true, but I do not think we are very good at getting at it. And then there is a very particular problem, which I think is emergent now, which is it ends up in conflict with a set of other psychological mechanisms around motivated reasoning and follow the leaderism. I, I try to think about the psychological stuff as the soil in which things grow. Right. There is a particular kind of politician who or a particular kind of idea that is in general more attractive to conservatives like Donald Trump would not have a chance on the Democratic side. There's a real reason Pete Buttigieg with his like, I speak eight languages and love James Joyce. And, yeah, you know, yeah. like I, I he, learned Norwegian to read a novel. Exactly. That is like that is like pure distilled liberal psychology. And at the same time, Donald Trump is in a way a pure distilled conservative psychology. But and this is, I think, really important. So certain things grow on certain sides. There's always a like if you 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 and I were at the American Prospect for years and there was like always this dream among liberals that you would get this kind of conservative coded liberal populist, right? Brian Schweitzer, the governor of Montana who had bolo ties was like a version of this for a while. And it never works because what liberals want is Barack Obama is to, at least for white liberals, Pete Buttigieg, right? There's this kind of like a smart, worldly, cosmopolitan. And so like you can't, this is soil, And particular things grow in particular soils. But once a movement has connected its fortunes, has decided it trusts an institution like academia or the media or a politician like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Barack Obama, once it has done that, then a set of other psychological processes come into play too around motivated reasoning, um, around like believing what we need to believe in order to make the things we want to have happen happen, right? Like, you know, winning an election or passing a bill or whatever it might be. And then you start getting into these things where it's like the Republican Party flips its views on Russia, as for that matter, does the Democratic Party in a very quick space. And the problem for me in this research has always been 
how these things end up conflicting under conditions of political pressure. And so I've been talking to political psychologists, and I will say right now there's a range. There are people who I would say are justifying that the theories have always been right. And maybe they're right, but like John Jost at New York University, who's a, a, a very well-known political psychologist, has done massive studies and meta studies. His view is that one, the virus is creating an authoritarian um, reaction, like it is pushing people to the right. He thinks that happened in the Democratic primary, pushing people towards Joe Biden, thinks it's happening among Republicans. But he also thinks that the fear response is very present, but that it is coming out in sublimated ways. It's coming out in uh, on the right in anger towards Democrats and so on. So that's one version of it. John Haidt, also at New York University, well-known for moral foundations work. Um, his view of this was a little bit, I think, closer to where mine comes out, which is that motivated reasoning around politicians, like the decision to trust Donald Trump is upstream from the decision of what you think about the virus. And so there is a tendency right now as, a, as you like politics kind of polarizes us around two sides to if you've already decided you trust Donald Trump, um, possibly for all these psychological correlate reasons before, like as he kind of like bounces around in this, it's going to change. Um, you're you're going to go with him, right? That the motivated reasoning is going to become stronger here than a kind of like hazy feeling about what happens when you see a picture of a dirty bathroom, which that seems correct to me. But it also like I really do think it raises this question, which to me, this is like why I ended up having trouble with the political psychology research is if these moral foundations, if these psychological correlates, if these big five personality factors, if they can't predict effectively how people are going to respond to something as acute and clear in the way it maps onto this as a pandemic virus, then like what really can we use them for? Like they're interesting and they seem to correlate with some stuff, but when it comes to like how things are going to play out in actual day-to-day -day, like brass knuckle politics, I just don't know that they're that useful. That's where I am, right? That the sort of follow the leader stuff, I, I think works perfectly well as like an explanation of what's going on, but it calls into question like how how much we need to worry about anything like anything other than follow the leader dynamics. Uh, or maybe it's different, like other countries have multi-party political systems. So those kind of leader dynamics may not be so important. You could have three or four different leaders who operate in a similar policy space. And But I, I guess the one thing you could potentially pull out of it is that this helps explain why the politics of open it up seems so rough for Trump. People have polarized around this, but they have not polarized symmetrically, right? So, like, Trump's view is, like, incredibly unpopular with Democrats and, like, kind of popular with Republicans in a way that it, it is weaker for him than, like, most of the other gambits that have been run. I mean, there are a lot of different ways you could understand that. Like, there are government scientists on television once a week being like, no, this is wrong. But, you know, re Republicans who are not super habituated to trust scientists and who are inclined to trust Donald Trump do seem to have at least more doubts about this open it up kind of strategy than they had about, you know, building a wall on the southern border, you know, maybe because it goes against their kind of basic dispositions. Yeah. And one thing I think you're seeing in that is this is not an issue where there is one Republican Party. If you look across the states and you look at Republican governors, 
there are a lot of Republican governors doing on the the core public health question here an excellent job. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're making some other decisions I don't agree with, right? On say how they cut state budgets and other things. But if you look at say a Mike DeWine, yeah, right? I don't have a like an argument with how Mike DeWine is handling like the public health recommendations here. Whereas if you look at like a governor, Ron DeSantis in Florida, I do have an argument or a Brian Kemp in, in, in Georgia, I do have an argument. But there are a lot of Republicans in the Senate, in in the states who want to handle this in a very different way than Trump. And so I do think, as you say, there is a way in which Trump is splitting his own base, which is not what he usually tries to do. And but it also creates this interesting question around the psychology of this. So imagine like we rerun the whole thing. Uh-huh. But instead of Donald Trump having won the 2016 election, John Kasich won it uh-huh. or um, Marco Rubio won it or pick your Republican. Right. Right. And that they were approaching this. I mean, Angela Merkel is a like a like a conservative politician in Germany in a way. Right. Like an old line Republican in a way. And. She is extremely popular for her kind of steady, careful, right? Like she's sort of like what would happen if we had a Rockefeller Republican Party in the country. I think you could tell me if I'm totally wrong about German politics. But in in a bunch of other countries, you have conservative leaning politicians, center right politicians who are approaching this in the way we associate in this country with the Democratic Party. There's like you could make a little bit of an argument that's really temperamentally. I think like Joe Biden is sort of like he's like the small C conservative candidate. Yeah. Just like the candidate who like wants to keep things steady, you know, run the institutions, et cetera. And if you had a Republican running that play right now as president, would the Republican Party, would Fox News be cohering around them or not? And let me add one complication into this. It is something I'm thinking about. We were talking earlier about how these psychological correlates have mapped onto other things, and in particular, something they map onto very closely is where people choose to live. And so in the early 20th century, for the same reason the psychological correlates didn't do much to separate the parties as well as far as we know, um, we know that density did not separate the parties. Uh, how dense the place you lived in did not predict the Dem- the House Democratic share of the vote um, in, in a particular place. And so that changed. Now density is an extraordinarily powerful predictor of party support. Um, there's a great paper by Will Wilkinson over the Niskanen Institute called The Density Divide about this, but there's not a place in this country country denser than 900 people per square mile that votes Republican. And for obvious reasons, this disease has hit harder earlier in dense urban areas, and it simply does pose a larger threat in dense urban areas. It is not to say it doesn't pose any threat in rural areas. It clearly does, but it's easier to keep control of. You don't need as intense social distancing to do it because of just the nature of how people live there. All of this, I think, is pretty obvious. But there is a mapping on to this, I think, in our politics right now, which is part of why it's splitting the Republican Party. Plenty of Republicans live in urban areas, but there are a lot of them who live in much less urban areas, who live in much more rural areas. And to them, this seems, to many of them at least, it seems overblown. And they're in these rules that are being put down by state governments that are built in part to protect the entire state because you do have transmission from rural areas into urban centers and so on. But they're angry about it. And so to the extent that the psychological stuff, which correlates onto where people live and where people live correlates onto who they vote for and also where they live correlates onto like what level of threat they potentially legitimately face or feel from coronavirus, that's another way this is 
polarizing. Like Fox News is in some ways continuously representing a rural backlash, even though Fox News, of course, is <laughs> located in New York City. Um, it is continuously trying to represent a kind of rural resentment of urban elites. And that's been mapped onto this very closely. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, two, two more just like semi-random thoughts to toss out here is I think most of us have observed that Asian countries appear on a whole to have had a more kind of functional response to this pandemic than Western ones. And and one thing I know is that the psychographic polarization of politics is not uh, super present in Korea and Taiwan. Uh, I don't I don't really know what what the nature of Hong Kong democracy is. Uh, but, I, but I assume it's the same there, that these are all countries where the primary axis of, of political conflict is about something else. Um, in, in the case of Taiwan, about the relationship with the People's Republic of China. Korea, it's like very complicated, but it, it has to do with like which regions the military dictatorship was in and, and other stuff like that. Um, Ireland also does not have heavily psychometrically loaded politics, again, because it's um, references back to it to a civil war a, a hundred years ago. They're more like America in the in the mid-century. And all those countries do seem to have had a better job of like having a technical kind of response rather than a political response. And then two countries that I've seen praised a lot by American liberals because they like the fact that they have prime ministers who are uh, young, uh, kind of hip seeming women are Denmark and New Zealand, uh, which those leaders appeal to white American liberals because they perform sort of high openness identity. Uh, but the actual political strategies of Meta Fredrickson and Jacinda Ardern were both to actually um, revert back to old school uh, hardline anti-immigrant politics um, and sort of bring center left parties back in touch with a, a more of a, a mid-century uh, labor tradition. And so they have sort of combined the strong state stuff of the left, like we'll shut things down and we'll just pay the money to keep people OK with very fast, very severe travel restrictions, you know, other things that you would associate with immigrant skeptical type politicians. Uh, that's not like a style of politics I have advocated for a lot uh, over time. But like those are the the models that people are looking at is the sort of ideologically incoherent Asian politics and kind of uh, back to the future immigrant hostile left politics in, in Denmark and New Zealand, uh, both of which have at least I think some relationship to, to the personal psychology stuff. Yeah, but just something I think that brings up here, which just makes this entire it makes, you know, the line hard cases make bad law. I do. I feel that way about the Trump administration, just like all over the analytical field, <laughs> because something about Trump is that he is just not following any coherent sense of his own political incentives that anybody can find. And I mean, this is true if you really talk to Republicans about it, too. Look, we I did a, a project with um, or Roger Karma, um, and, and I was the editor on it, did a, did a project looking at how world leaders in other countries have fared in the polls since coronavirus, looking how governors across the states have fared in the polls around the coronavirus. And you see polling bumps ranging from 15 to 50 percentage points. Donald Trump, depending on the average you look at, is like down to or up to. So 
like against the baseline, his response has been catastrophic politically. He there's a huge rally around the flag effect you should be able to get by handling this like halfway competently. In some of these cases, the world leaders didn't hand it competently at the beginning um, or the governors. Right. So if you look at um, Italy, you look at the UK, you look at everybody's friend, um, Andrew Cuomo in New York, like the early responses there were not good. But electorates were willing to forgive early screwing around as long as people like got on board quickly. Trump has just remained very erratic from the beginning. And this is true. Uh, again, it's true all the way through, right? Like to the kind of right wing social Democrat politics you're talking about, the, the, the psychographically right wing social democratic politics you're talking about, which there has always been a strain of in Trumpism and people like Steve Bannon always tried to make a, a more clear ideological line out of where you're anti-immigrant, but you have a welfare state for white people. Like you could really do that here, right? You could be incredibly generous on the stimulus, incredibly harsh on borders, incredibly xenophobic in your rhetoric, really go to war on the China a thing, which he's clearly trying to do. But it would have to be all the way through. You'd have to be handling it well and then using the kind of xenophobia to split the opposition. You can't just handle it poorly and use the xenophobia. Or I mean, you can, but it doesn't work that well. And so the thing that is like hard to look at here compared to other countries, look, there are political systems where the psychographic dimensions seem to split the system and, and systems where they don't. I think something distinct about America right now is like how many different dimensions we're polarizing on and like trying to understand their common substrate. That's where the psychology stuff becomes, I think, very appealing. But at the same time, if you just elect an incoherent leader, it's going to like throw things out of alignment because he's not going to choose any of these threads and stick to them. Um, there's a lot you could do here. But the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump, 60 some days after declaring a national emergency on coronavirus, still has not released a plan. And the effort among Republicans to try to justify this, it like borders on the farcical. Uh, I, I just wrote this piece the other day that was about Trump not having a plan on coronavirus. And I was looking at this Wall Street Journal op-ed by Chris DeMuth, who's at Hudson, um, which is a conservative uh, inst uh, institute. And he was talking about how Trump, like he's really brought back federalism here and he's doing it. He's raising up and, and DeMuth has language. I'm going to paraphrase a bit, but this is roughly his language. He's raising up our marvelous governors and mayors and our amazing business leaders. And Trump is like calling the governor of Michigan a halfwit. The governor of Maryland is forcing supplies to land at Baltimore airport under state trooper guard because he's worried Trump will take them from him. Trump is constantly like he told in public, like at a press conference, Mike Pence that he shouldn't talk to the governors of Michigan and Washington. Like the idea that this is federalism is absurd, but this is the problem that Trump is not coherent. And so what you really, he really creates this collision between whatever you think conservatism is psychologically or ideologically and just what he does which is erratic somebody on twitter i i don't remember who i, I want to say maybe it was david from but I, I think i could be wrong about that somebody was just making this point that people keep looking for trump to be a genius of some kind a political 
genius and they have trouble just really taking seriously what a to be generous about it an idiosyncratic personality he is and that for him the personal resentments grudges the feeling that he has to be winning in these little contests he has with people on cable news i mean just no normal politician operating under any normal strategy chooses this is the time to accuse joe scarborough of being a murderer like what like what it just isn't worth your time like it's not going to help you in the long run you can fight with the media but that's a distraction when like you've got a real problem here. And it's going to be very hard to extract a political lesson out of Trump. What Trump just shows, he creates so much like noise in the system that you can see are any of the signals strong enough to overpower the noise, right? Is the psychology strong enough to overpower the follow the leader noise? No. Is the ideology strong enough to overcome the follow the leader the noise? No. Like it just, it really shows you what happens when politics does devolve into something of a personality cult all right uh let's let's take a break let's let's talk about let's talk about solutions support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the harris school of public policy with the constant news cycle there's a lot of noise out there opinions are plastered all over social media Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I did a piece recently trying to sort of bundle together a bunch of different things that a, a bunch of different people have 
told me we should do, um, with me sort of trying to take the complementary aspects of them. I, I, I find that like what a lot of outspoken technical experts in the coronavirus era like to do is sort of pound on their hobby horse, which is good. I mean, it's good for people to know a lot about a specific thing. But most of these kind of ideas, like they they work together reasonably well. And they outline like, what would it look like if the United States was to seriously try to suppress coronavirus infections, which to be clear, we're just not doing now. Uh, There's a sort of weird debate happening about how to characterize the infection trend over the past two weeks. But Trump is not leading a national effort to suppress coronavirus infections. The infection rate has been going down, but like it will go back up again. Like there's no there's no world in which a virus just goes to zero for no reason, uh, which is which is what we're what we're trying now. What looks like, you know, has worked. Uh, Wait, just yeah. I mean, what seems to be happening is that there are a lot of governors trying to bring it down, although not like at a level where they can eliminate it. And that seems to be working in people's social distancing. But there's no national strategy to actually, as you put it, crush the curve. Right. And and states are starting to relax their restrictions. I mean, some will keep them. But, you know, it, it it's very challenging for an American state to hermetically seal itself off from the rest of the world. Um, Hong Kong and Taiwan and Korea are Singapore are struggling with reimportation of cases from abroad. But like uh, Charlie Baker is, I think, done a great job in, in Massachusetts is really sort of the, the the best case for having a pretty bad outbreak and like getting your arms around it. But it's not an island. It's a rectangle in the middle of a country with no internal border controls. So, you know, I, I don't know how, how that will, will work. One piece of this is testing, which I think has been very prominent in American politics, but often I think in a sort of unclear way, uh, like Chuck Schumer, like every day will say like, will tweet, it's May 11th and we still have no national testing strategy. But like he himself doesn't explain what that would look like. Um, and I think Paul Romer, who has become sort of best known for the slightly outlandish idea that we should do 20 million random tests per day, he's an economist. And his biggest contribution to this is on the economics of test production, where the point he keeps making is that, like, this is in the domain right now of the medical professionals who are great. We all love medical professionals, but medical professionals are so accustomed to the idea that you do things in doctor's offices and then you bill insurance companies that they like aren't thinking outside that box. And so companies are not trying to create a situation in which like you and I and other random people could just do tests at home. And like get certified because there's no way for them to get paid under the current model. Like in, health insurance will pay for a diagnostic test. They won't pay for me to get tested just because I'm curious. Right. That's not like that's not what health insurance is. But what we could do in addition to working on the specifics of swabs and reagents and other things like that is commit to the idea that like we will pay for people to get frequent testing in a non-clinical setting if you can develop those tests. And we have like actually made a ton of progress in tests on both the implementation level, Herman Lopez's great piece about this, but also on the uh, theory level. Like Rutgers scientists have a working home saliva test, which 
Now, the closest thing to a commercial operation of it is this weird thing where you need to like do a video conference with a doctor who is supervising it because that then makes it like a medical procedure and then you can fight with your insurance company about it. And this is like a mix of a regulatory story with the FDA and a like spend money story. Uh, But it really seems like a much more concrete thing the government could be doing than just kind of pounding the table about like, we should have tests. But let me push you on the Chuck Schumer question, which is, what testing strategy are you Mm -hmm. advocating for here? Because I, I think there's been a language as if like just making tests available does something profound in terms of mm-hmm. changing the curve, crushing the curve, whatever, which I don't think it does. I mean, Paul Romer has, I think there are two versions of the Romer theory. One is this mega 20 to 35 million random tests per day, which if we could do it, great, but both the technical and um, just human implementation problems of that seem quite profound. And then he also has a version of it as a as a kind of waypoint on that about just constant testing of frontline workers and different kinds of players in the economy. And so there are different versions here that are strategy, but what strategy are you proposing here? Like, what are we going to accomplish with this as opposed to like people who are anxious getting tested? Right. So, you know, Roma wrote in a in an op-ed with, with Zeke Emanuel what I think is really Emanuel's idea, which is that we need to start testing the people who are most likely to spread the virus instead of testing the people who are most likely to be sick, right? That like in a weird way, if you're coughing, like it's the spring now, right? Like you probably don't have the flu, like just stay home if you're coughing. And if you need to test something, what you need is a pulse oximeter, which will tell you if you might need to go to the hospital. And if people show up at the hospital with coronavirus symptoms and low blood oxygen, like you just treat them. It's not important to test. You should assume they have coronavirus, right? It's, it's, It's not important to do. The people you need to test, this is ironically what the White House is doing with their own staff, right? But it's saying, look, we have people who are working in meatpacking plants. We have people who are working uh, or just incarcerated in prisons. We have people in nursing homes. We know that these are very high-risk scenarios. And what we need to be doing is extremely frequent testing of those high-risk individuals so that we can catch the asymptomatic and the pre-symptomatic cases right away and isolate those people and then double down on testing everybody they might have been in contact with. So my article structure seven things. Uh, But this then like branches off into two of the other things. One is contact tracing, right? So it's like you are testing and then ideally you should also have people who can follow up on the positive tests and then test those people. This is the thing states are doing, right? Of, Of everything on the menu, this is the one where I think real progress is happening. Almost every state is hiring contact tracers. It's weird. This is the one that every state is doing, but also the one where the experts are sort of most like, I don't know, man, like we've never done contact tracing on this scale. Uh, but it's good. It's like it's, it's it's good to try it. There's also all these digital debates, which uh, I, I leave to the tech people. Um, but like in South Korea, like the cell phone will tell you if you were like in the same neighborhood as somebody who tested positive. I'm not sure I understand what that accomplishes. I want to jump in on the digital debate for a minute, because I think it gets this question of strategy in a pretty profound way. So 
there are a couple things you are trying to do here, and I think it's worth like delineating them. So one thing you're trying to do is actually reduce the total number of coronavirus infections, particularly among vulnerable populations and particularly among people who would be likely to do tremendous amounts of spreading, right? Like those are two very important goals. But another thing you're trying to do is recognizing that coronavirus is going to be around until there is a vaccine and there's not going to be a vaccine for 12 months to 24 months, at least not at mass production. You need to create a context in which people feel a sense of security. And that's actually really important, right? Like one thing TSA does, and I don't love it, but there's a reason they do it is a lot of security theater at airports. Because after 9-11 and terrorist attacks, like what they needed to do in addition to like trying to keep people from blowing up airplanes was trying to make people feel safe flying. And I am on the side that would like to see some of these things relaxed given what I think their cost benefit is. But there is something going on there where part of what you like need to do in a situation where people become very afraid of something is get them less afraid. Like my parents are just terrified. They're both in their 70s. They both have comorbidities that would make them particularly vulnerable to coronavirus. I am terrified on their behalf. But they are like there is no level of risk they feel willing to take, basically. And a question is like, how do you create a situation where they, where I, where others feel like we can begin to do things because there's a sense of security. And one of the things about the digital surveillance ideas, which have a lot of problems, like there's no doubt about them, and they are creepy, which is like another problem. But the way that they seem somewhat um, appealing, certainly to me, is that contact tracing is working backwards in this somewhat slow way from somebody getting a, a disease. So it's like a good overall epidemiological strategy. But given the period of asymptomatic spread here, given the incubation period, it's not clear it really works fast enough. Whereas the thing where your phone can tell you, like that is something that rightly or wrongly, and even if only 40 or 50% of people sign up for it, you're going to start to feel like there's like a web around you that is beginning to tell you if there's something you need to worry about. And I've become a little bit more friendly to these ideas simply in the sense that I think they are something that if we implemented them, and they would be very hard to implement, could begin to make people feel willing to take a little bit more risk because their background feeling of security begins to go up. Whereas contact tracing... I don't think it does that. I don't think contact tracing creates a level of almost like security theater. We are going to need for people um, to be willing to like actually just like go back out into the economy once it is relatively safe to do so. So I'm a little friendlier. I want to put in a word for at least thinking about digital surveillance. Yeah, well, I'm not against it. Uh, with the other, I, I would say, I feel like the place where digital surveillance could play a really constructive role is sort of where they are now in South Korea, which is like you basically have suppressed the virus, but you're doing ongoing surveillance. Right. And so it would be really great if like after there were no cases, like no cases Monday, no cases Tuesday, no cases Wednesday. Uh Oh, there's a case on Thursday. It'd be really good for everyone to be immediately notified here's where that case was. Here's where that person was. Like, we are letting you know. And then on Friday, when that one case turns to maybe two cases, like, you continue to get that update. And then hopefully it goes to three, but then back down to two, back down to one with, like, real information about, like, what's the red zone? Because Particularly because, like, America is so big. If you got down to a much lower level than we're at now, you could have an outbreak in Phoenix, 
like without that having any particular implications for your day-to-day life in New Hampshire. Um, but you would want people to be notified rapidly. It's also what's, I think, unsettling to people about it. It's like you would not want if you uh, owned a business in a strip mall and somebody got coronavirus at a different business in the same strip mall, you would not be thrilled about everybody's phones blaring about the raging infection in your neighborhood strip mall. But I also think that that's what's good about it is it like actually lets people take action in their lives in like a more specific way than like cower in fear, um, which also leads us to masks, uh, because I, I feel like America, after the great mask flip flop, sort of landed on the idea that people should get cloth masks because cloth masks have some efficacy and that that will prevent shortages of the more effective masks, which is good. Like, that is the right thing to tell people. The fact remains, though, that professional-grade surgical masks are more effective than cloth masks, and N95 respirators are about as effective as surgical masks if you just try to stop them on your face um, and are more effective if somebody like trains you in how to seal it correctly. Um, I don't think anybody thinks it makes sense to try to get technical professional grade respirators in the hands of every single person and then train them to use them and then have them constantly disposing of them. But you could have a wider circle of people using the highest grade respirators and a much broader circle of people using professional grade surgical masks. These are the kind you used to be able to buy in stores uh, b- before the pandemic. You just slip them around your ears. If we increase production of them and we've been talking about PPE for a long time in America and sometimes talking about the Defense Production Act. But the thing that the people who have have really worked on this say is they look at the experience American companies had ramping up mask production during the H1N1 pandemic. And The unfortunate thing is that the companies that really went in on making a lot of masks during that mask demand spike, they wound up actually all losing their shirts because demand turned out to be lower. But they kept their masks. Ha! Um, Yes. Um, No, but there's like a really like sad NPR story where the guy's like, well, I like really increased my factory's capacity and I hired all these people. But then the pandemic ended sooner than people said. So I went bankrupt. And one super helpful thing the government could do is just say that it will buy the masks, right? That like, if we undershoot for some reason, like we will just put a bunch of fucking masks in a warehouse someplace. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's like worst case scenario, we wind up with a bigger mask stockpile for next time. But best case scenario, people like really know to go on this rather than what we've been doing is this kind of slow, steady ramp up. Uh, But you want to like hit the gas super duper hard. And the way you do that is by saying like, yeah, we'll we'll take a billion surgical masks. Like, what's the difference? And that's something I think the government could do pretty easily. But we've now slipped in a way that like wasn't even the case when I first started reporting on this into masks as a culture war object rather than a subject of scientific disagreement. So it now seems to me like far-fetched that the Trump administration would do this. This is like the worst thing that I've ever seen happen, is like conservatives decide to broadcast the idea that it is unmanly 
or something to wear masks. And so we shouldn't try to get them uh, because the evidence seems like really, really, really clear that it's good for, for people to wear masks and that we should make more of them. I will just say the I, I agree with most of that. I've been struck by the way the evidence still doesn't seem that clear. Like there's a new SIDRAP paper, to my surprise, about how like the mask thing is still there's this way in which the guidance on masks flipped from an all caps no to an all caps yes without the underlying um, evidence base changing that much. I am wearing masks and think people should and saw an interesting thing also about even if you can't do the N95, if you could make masks out of two different kinds of material, cotton one more, that seems to have a big boosting effect. Seems to me masks are good. They're also like a protective signaling thing. I hear from people who are vulnerable, who are scared when they are on the street and do not see other people wearing masks versus they are. And like, I actually think giving people a sense of security is a really important goal here. So I'm all I'm all in and all for masks. But it is weird to me how little information we actually have on what is working and to what degree. This is true on social distancing too. Like it's clearly working, but which parts of it are the parts that are like carrying most of the weight is a really important question that we actually don't know the answer to. Anyway, the government should buy a bunch of masks. I think that's really true on, on social distancing, um, which brings to, I think, the most like controversial but probably most important idea, which is that one thing that we see very clearly in the United States is that a lot of people who are sick got sick from other members of their household, right? Um, now, obviously, in a literal sense, like it's people leaving the house is the only way the virus can spread from household to household. But like in Andrew Cuomo's latest presentation in New York, most of the new cases emerging in New York State are not from essential workers, not from people traveling. They're from people who have been staying home. Right. And they're not getting sick by magic. Um, they're getting sick from other people. And you sort of add to that the institutional settings, you know, things like that. So we don't totally know what aspects of social distancing are working, but we do know the aspect of social distancing that isn't working is that the advice from the CDC to try to isolate yourself at home doesn't work. We don't know exactly why it doesn't work. Like, are people not complying with the instructions or do the instructions themselves actually not function? But in practice, like this has failed, right? Like people self-isolating inside their own homes is not preventing transmission. And I think we really need to do what they have done throughout Asia and separate positive tests from the rest of their household. You can argue about how draconian should we be about that? Like, should it be purely voluntary, voluntary with incentives, like true quarantine where we say we're going to throw you in jail if you don't comply? I, I don't think we need to go into the most extreme kind of scenarios here. Like, I think normal human beings don't want to infect their families, but are simply failing at self-isolation type measures. But this seems like a real common thread in the successful countries. It is not based on like highly speculative studies about coronavirus in particular. It's just like for clear, obvious reasons, like if you're living with other people, you are exposing them to a lot of your respiratory excretions. Nobody is wearing a mask at home 
like 24 seven. That would be a weird way to sleep. I think Uh, the latest CDC thing was like, well, you should watch out because your cat might get sick and your cat could spread it to other members of your household. And I'm not like a cat's expert, but like you're not going to convince your cat to stay six feet away from you. Like that doesn't that doesn't make sense. And I think or to wear a mask. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and I think that's the sort of big loophole in the system that we have here. And I get that it's like a, a considered a tough conversation politically in the United States, but we're also seeing that like trying to tell people to stay home like indefinitely is wearing at the fringes of political viability um and i'm just not convinced that quarantining sick people is less politically viable than sort of semi quarantining the entire population and i think it would be a lot more effective i think that's right look and i think something that your piece shows and people should read it um cuz there are even more ideas than we have gotten to here But we could have a plan. We could have a strategy. There are arguable ideas on your list, and we could be arguing about them. We have been trapped, and we talked about this on the show last week, in this very false and very dangerous choice between lockdown with no end and reopening with no security. And it just doesn't need to be that way. Um, If we just had competent federal political leadership, like we could have a debate over what on this menu we want to do and at what level. Do we want to do contact tracing manually or do we want to do digital surveillance? And if so, what kind of digital surveillance? Do we want to do quarantining? And if so, at what level? Is it coercive? Is it voluntary? Is the idea that like hotels have nobody in them so the government will pay for you to get a really nice room at a hotel and like now you get to hang out and like take baths like that, you know, like I'm in a house (laughs) with a toddler right now. If you told me I got two weeks in a hotel... And nobody could tell tell me I was being irresponsible. It doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. Um, we could have these debates. We could have a discussion. We could have a plan. And we just don't. It's not that there's nothing to do. It's not that we're doing everything we could do. It's that there is a void where the like the 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 leadership and the plan should be. I have this point in this piece I put out, but the fundamental problem at this point is not even that Donald Trump is doing the wrong thing. It's it substantively, he's doing basically nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really right. I don't think that the strategy of the uh, the Swedish government um, or what some of the the middle income countries are doing is like the the best strategy. But there is a strategy to it. There is a theory of we are not going to try to beat this thing. And what we are going to try to do is protect the most vulnerable people. Regular people will try to avoid getting sick to some degree. And what you actually want to do in a non-suppression scenario is like push back against that, right? Is like try to get young people with no comorbidities to let go of their fear and like embrace becoming ill recovering and then being immune because you want to get to a place where you don't have to keep your elderly and your diabetic and stuff under lock and key 24 hours a day, right? And I think you look at the situation in Swedish nursing homes and you can see that like they have not actually been able to execute on this playbook. Uh, but it is a playbook. Like it's a it's an idea, you know? And what Trump is doing where we're not really doing anything to achieve a suppression goal, but we're not articulating a different 
strategy. Like instead, he's going out in the cameras and he's like saying, oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine. But like, that's not true, you know, and like, that's not what they're saying in Sweden. They're not saying like nobody is getting sick or like miraculously the virus will vanish. They are adopting an alternate theory of how to manage a pandemic that they claim will have more medium term sustainability and like ultimately preserve lives. And like we could argue about that, right? Like, do we want children to get sick? this summer so we can reopen schools in the fall or something. But I I just like heard Trump say, oh, no, I don't know. The schools should open, which I don't know. Like, I'm a parent. I hope the schools open. But like, what's he doing to facilitate that? Like, there's no program coming from the federal government. Like, it's very we talked about this last week. Your piece on it is excellent. But it's like it's weird the longer you Think about it. You know, like I I got myself pulled into the spiral of like Trump tweets about Obamagate the other day. And it's like, I have not been a big fan of the theory that like Trump is like throwing out chum specifically to distract us. But like that was it. It's like I was getting distracted from the like shocking reality that there is no federal response to the coronavirus pandemic by getting like amped up about, you know, unmasking Michael Flynn. And it's like it's really fucked up. Let's not get distracted. People should read Matt's piece. We should have a plan. That is the we weeds. Should. You should go to the weeds Facebook group and talk about this. Don't be distracted. Yes. Talk about your keep plans. Your eyes, keep which, your eyes on the prize. Which, which hotel would you quarantine in? Um, you know, exactly. Get, get 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 a good one in your town because you don't get to stay in hotels in your own city normally. So it could be the yeah. pandemic upside. All right. So uh, with that, uh, thanks Ezra. Thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld, and the weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.